My name is Carla and this is The Plodcast. Hey everybody and welcome back to the podcast. We'll be taking a journey through some of Victoria's greatest war stories from the police veterans who live them and those who support them. Division 4, a Crawford production. Morning, everybody. For this week's episode, we're welcoming back PVV's own social worker, Rebecca Lynch, and clinical counsellor, Dr. Shannon Hood, who are here to discuss the fascinating concept of post-traumatic growth. Welcome back, team. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Carla. And what better day to do it than on this glorious Valentine's Day? I'm surprised your dance card was free, Shannon. (laughs) Yes, yes, I made some space. I am feeling a little guilty, though, that I didn't bring the chocolates and roses in for you ladies. But sorry about that. We'll be inundated, Uh, so it's absolutely fine. (laughs) I obviously have so many Valentines. (laughs) Clearly. A little bit of roses, like, flooding my front door. Clearly. Great. You need a cool room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Post-traumatic growth, uh, a fabulous topic, something I don't think that gets enough airtime. Last time we met Shannon, we spoke about post-traumatic stress disorder and cumulative trauma. So I think this is a lovely space to head to next to to give people some hope and reassurance that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Thanks, Beck. And I, um, I recall from last time we, I had to kind of manage myself not to go down this path. So I've kind of been looking forward to this conversation since then that we can fully explore this topic. Yeah, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, if we don't have hope that things are going to get better, then we can't expect the people that we're supporting to have that sense of hope as well. So it's good that we naturally tended to go towards this topic. Great. Uh, it's, a, it's a broad concept, so you have kindly broken it down for us and it is embedded in literature and evidence-based clinical practice, so it's not just a phenomena that we have come up with. But the four areas we're going to cover today are the characteristics of post-traumatic growth, common factors of those is people that are experiencing it, predisposing factors and how we support folk to head down this path so they can make meaning and sense of the trauma or traumas that they have experienced in this context of policing, which we know uh, you can have many, many days on the job Mm. or in the job and coast along not too bad. uh, Or for some of our police veterans, you can have a week in the job and experience a trauma that will stay with you for the rest of your career and sadly the rest of your life. Mm. And that is why at Police Veterans Victoria, the criteria to become a veteran is to have served one day, mm. which aligns with the Australian Defence Force. Yeah. Yeah. As you say that, I've got a, 
an incident flooding back where I went and supported a crew, New South Wales police crew, um, doesn't really matter where, but there was a um, probationary officer who was in her third week and attended a fatal. And so, yeah, it, it can be take a while um, for this stuff to build or it can be pretty quick and, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, there is hope. There is hope and it's... Um, it's an amazing job that our police officers do and we want them to be thriving and growing throughout their careers. So, yeah, For look sure. forward to today's topic. For sure. Okay, so let's kick off then with some characteristics we commonly find uh, for those experiencing post-traumatic growth. Sure, very happy to explore that. And you did mention that it is um, based in literature, and it's, but it's really it's quite interesting. It's in the scheme of psychological studies, it's only relatively new, which is kind of I think it's a bit of a reflection on the fact that um, there can be quite even amongst the psychological profession quite a, a view towards disorder rather than thriving. Um, and so I don't think post-traumatic growth is new. I think it's been around for as long as humans have been around. But we're still, from a research point of view, we, it would, you could fairly say we're still in the infancy of exactly understanding what's going on. But we have enough that we can say with confidence a few things about post-traumatic growth. Um, I prefer the phrase actually post-rattled growth, <laughs> um, but we can pick that up if that's at all helpful. Um, but the technical term is post-traumatic growth. There's some general characteristics that we observe, and this doesn't mean that every person who's experienced post-traumatic growth is showing, going to show all five of these characteristics. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't grow from a, a difficult experience and have other areas, but when we do the research, we've got to um, be confident that there's enough people that have shown these characteristics that we can say that these kind of are out there. So I don't want to create the idea for the listeners that this is the definitive exhaustive list. This is just sort of the indicative list that there are enough people have shown this that we can be confident that it's pretty true. So, and they're fairly vague topics and the way they manifest themselves in each person is radically different. But um, what the, the kind of top of the list is people come away with a sense of greater personal strength, a sense that um, I, I maybe I've, I've got more in me than I even realised beforehand. Um, and that's pretty extraordinary because often it's coupled with this almost paradoxical view of having experienced that, I now somehow recognise that I'm more vulnerable than I thought I was, but at the same time I'm stronger. So it's almost this kind of paradox that... I didn't have any insight into that side of life or that that experience could happen to anyone, let alone me. And so now I am recognising that maybe I'm a bit more vulnerable to that thing, but because I've overcome it, I'm actually stronger for it. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of... So you hear a lot of those stories from people who um, discuss this bullet point of personally stronger mm. in some way. Something deep in them is somehow stronger. It's a superpower. Well, Which, yeah. Because we know police in general, uh, police, PCOs, PSOs, 
Uh, I'll throw VPS staff in there yeah. because I am one of them. <laughs> um, I, I mean, they're incredibly resilient people anyway. I don't think yeah. you join up for that type of work. Uh, I don't want to ring the police and the police arrive and they burst into tears. <laughs> uh, so they're an incredibly resilient cohort. So to then realise that, well, I face this adversity and I, and I coin it having that, a superpower to actually be, to be able to overcome that... That's quite profound. It is profound. And what we notice, though, is sometimes that idea of having a superpower can be a bit of a naive view, um, can be a bit of a sense of I'm bulletproof. What we know in post-traumatic growth is people actually will often say, I realise I'm not as bulletproof as I thought I was, but that's okay because I'm pretty strong and I can overcome that. So that kind of personal strength is a big a big factor that we see manifest in different ways, but it's definitely there. The second one that we notice quite often is people will change the nature of their relationships with others. So they've gone through this life experience, this um, this rattling that I'll call it, um, think they've been rattled for some reason because of an incident or accumulation of incidents or whatever, and it causes them to reassess life. And a big part of that life reassessment is they usually reprioritise or recalibrate relationships. And so that's an interesting thing. Sometimes there's relationships that they needed to give more attention to that they'll elevate. But there's also often people will observe in themselves, they'll say, you know, there's relationships I've been pursuing that I can see now I need to let go a little or I need to drop off. So it's not just that they... They emphasise relationship more, but they reprioritise their relationships. Suddenly, um, relationships that perhaps didn't seem quite so important previously, or they might have intellectually said, my relationship with my partner or my kids or my ageing parents is important. Now they go, oh, okay, yeah, I need to give that the attention that it deserves. And Mm -hmm. so that relationship adjustment will often happen and often be seen as a post-traumatic growth factor where they'll be very intentional about reprioritizing life generally but relationships in particular so yeah two things i'll add to that one of the things or uh, uh, leading issues i believe in victoria police uh, is relationship breakdown Mm. and there are many reasons for that Uh, shift work on call long hours and then the the experiences that they have during the during their work hours um, but also, so, so I'm pleased to hear that re-evaluating and refocusing on relationships comes into this, but it's also the, uh, their relationship with work as well. And I know a lot of police veterans will say, oh, in the latter half of my career, I had a much healthier relationship with work and my, I knew that I needed to focus on my personal relationships because they're the people that will be there when I retire. Mm. Yeah, uh, it won't be my senior sergeant and those those people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think it can be even more nuanced than that. People will be selective even about the relationships they pursue at work. Mm-hmm. Um, their pursuit of relationship for political agenda or career gain might not be quite as important as it was prior to this sort of life rattling event, and now they can see things in a new perspective. So yeah, that quite often happens. The other thing that often happens, I guess the third thing, is people uh, see new possibilities in life generally and also for their own life personally. So they've, they've had this sort of startle 
And sometimes it's talked about in terms of pursuing a new purpose or making a new discovery or, um, yeah, so there, there's this sort of new possibilities that open up. So a, an example that was that's close to my heart is uh, there was a lady who uh, in, in Canberra whose son died um, as a result of suicide. He was in a, a construction apprentice. And she went through an understandably difficult time. She took that tr definitely traumatic event and she saw new possibilities and new need in the need to support young apprentices in the construction industry in their mental health. So she actually started a foundation that now is a very large Australia-wide foundation that pursues mental health initially in the construction industry, but it's got broader than that. And many people, post-traumatic growth stories will say, that thing that happened to me was the impetus for me to start something new, to see a new possibility. We see it um, in a lot of the foundations that get started by parents who've lost children. Those, so those kinds of tragic... I think we... Um, as I see in, in Rosie Batty and her experience that she had with the loss of her son and then went on to become such an advocate and Australian of the Year, you know, that sort of idea, and it doesn't have to be at that scale, but um, it would be interesting. We, we will never know, but quite possibly it was because of that traumatic event that she experienced that she had this new horizon, that she could see those new possibilities and new need. And people will have the, the courage to pursue those that they might not have had otherwise if they hadn't have had that traumatic experience. The other area that is uh, definitely a strong point is people grow in their appreciation of the little things. So fewer things are taken for granted for people who are experiencing post-traumatic growth. Those simple things in life, the things that uh, they can now potentially... So what I see a lot of with emergency services people is they will look at the circumstance of the individual who was injured or killed in the car accident or in the home that they visited or whatever it is that they might have been exposed to and they will, you know, they'll often say phrases like, there but for the grace of God go I, you know, that idea of I can see what could happen in life. And I know for myself when I come home from even debriefing crews or my own kind of call-outs, I'll often walk in and um, it's been more than one occasion where my kids have been stirred by a wake-up hug from Dad because suddenly my own family, I have this greater appreciation. I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that's been post-traumatic growth, but it's the kind of sentiment that you can hear and you hear in people who say, that stuff that I just took for granted, I just have a greater appreciation for that now that I've got this perspective because of that moment of rattling that I had in my life. And the final area that we know definitively, and I'm particularly passionate about this area, is people have a renewed either a, a, a rediscovery of their spirituality or of, of an old spirituality that may have kind of been sitting dormant for a while, or they find a new expression of faith and spirituality that comes from this sort of perspective on life that they're now having to... We talked last time about the importance of, of sense-making and meaning-making, and I think I might have even mentioned that for some people um, that 
can be found by leaning into their faith. That can be a helpful process for them. And so this is quite a commonly seen thing that the research is showing, <coughs> that after a, no worries, after a traumatic incident, uh, people will, there'll be a flourishing and a coming alive of some kind of spirituality. So they're the kind of five broad characteristics. It's not an exhaustive list, but personal strength, somehow I'm more vulnerable but stronger, reprioritizing of relationships, a pursuit and a seeing of new possibilities, a greater appreciation for the simple things and a sort of a rediscovery of spirituality. They're the characteristics of post-traumatic growth or post-rattling growth. I think it's helpful, Shannon, to explain those four characteristics because often as humans we do things, however, we don't take the time to stop and wonder why we're doing them. E.g., you explain beautifully, I go home and uh, my children will often be woken by a hug in the middle of the night <laughs> if you've been to something. Mm. Uh, and the, uh, just the little things that we notice we're more appreciative of, certainly since COVID, I think people catching up with friends and family were more appreciative. But to put it in that, that framework around what are the characteristics of post-traumatic growth uh, is, is super helpful. You mentioned earlier, you like to call it post-rattled growth? Yes. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Can yeah. I ask you more about that? Yeah, sure, sure. I guess it's um, rattled is not a technical term, and in some ways that's why I find it's quite helpful. Uh, people speak of the word trauma so um, in such a random or diverse kind of way that it's often quite hard, and not only do much of the community speak broadly about trauma in a non-precise way, but even if, like if you were to find a psychologist and a paramedic, they would have a very precise definition of trauma, but it's different. Mm. And so this idea of trauma, people can have different ideas, but, but I like to call it post-rattled because even though it's not a technical term, it's a term that most of us get, most of us understand. And so following a critical incident, I think very simply that there's off, there's... There's three outcomes, I think, following a critical incident that I will sometimes call <coughs> duck's back, flat tyre or rattled. Um, and so duck's back is absolutely as it implies. That incident, potentially traumatic event, critical incident, but for many people it was water off a duck's back. Like it's, and that's okay. You know, We don't want everyone and we don't expect everyone to be um, struggling after a critical incident. We don't want that. So many people will have the duck's back experience Many people have the flat tyre experience. So the flat tyre, it's a bit of an inconvenience. Um, you might have to pull over briefly, but you're fairly self-contained. Fix the tyre, put the new one on, next couple of days pop down to Bow Repairs, get it fixed, and you might have got your hands dirty a bit and it, you know, it was just slowed you down, but essentially you're back on the road again and you're rolling. So that kind of flat tyre experience, it's, it wasn't totally debilitating, but... It wasn't water off a duck's back either. And I would call the flat tyre thing the closest definition I have to resilience um, is that flat tyre experience. But then there'll be the rattled experience. And that's where I think, and people that I talk to just sort of get that phrase rattled. Yeah, I was rattled for a while. I, I found myself thinking about that thing or, yeah, it really, really rattled me. Um, and so the, um, the interesting thing about post-rattled growth <laughs> is that you can't, you can't experience the growth unless you've had the rattling. So it's when, when, when talking about... 
you can learn lessons, absolutely. You can go through the after-action review and you can make new cognitive discoveries. But what we're talking about here is this sort of deep, transformative life. Oh, boy, something's happened to me there that's really rattled me and now I'm going to make some significant changes in my life or I've made this significant discovery. They're the kinds of things we're talking about in terms of post-rattled growth. So you can't experience the growth unless you've had the rattling. And the other thing that's really important in this context is you can't experience the growth unless the growth unless you've acknowledged that you've been rattled. So that's a really a really key thing because I think a lot of people miss out on the growth because they get rattled but they refuse to acknowledge it and I was I think last time we spoke that you used this lovely phrase you know the stiff upper lip mm. arms folded mm. I'm all right mate go nothing to see here kind of um they often people will know that they're rattled but they're in that sort of rattling denial and my heart grieves because i'm thinking until you can accept this you're going to exclude yourself from the growth that might be on the other side and yeah so anyway that post rattled growth i find it is a bit more helpful phrase, but it's not technical, so we... Uh, I, I much prefer the not technical stuff, <laughs> don't you worry. Uh, you're in the right place here. I feel that. Uh, thank you, good. Um, I think you're right, though, in the sense that for many police veterans for an awfully long time, and, and community members, it wasn't accepted to be rattled. Uh, and was certainly not accepted to say that out aloud, mm. uh, and that water off a duck's back or that stiff upper lip mentality was the only way. And I think last time I mentioned when I attended critical incident debriefs or responses with Victoria Police, I was never worried about the person that was crying uh, because they were processing their experience and they were putting words to what happened to them. It was the folk that were very avoidant and, no, quick, let's get on with it. Yeah. I'd like to also couple that with, I know in previous jobs I've worked in, uh, the response team of child protection, prior to having uh, my little boy, things didn't affect me. I was mm, very yeah, water off a duck's exactly. back. And I'd yeah. get home and I'd think, oh, maybe I'm just... Uh, language warning I'm an arsehole I mean this this hasn't really rattled me yeah. whatsoever so that's okay as well we need the folk in our community that it is a water off a duck's back and they get on with life and certainly our veterans that retire happy and healthy but we're here to talk about the rattling uh, and how we make sense of that so I think it's a lovely phrase yeah uh, common factors of people experiencing post-traumatic growth so we've we've we're, no, I'm going to go backwards. Post-rattling Rattling growth. Because <laughs> sure. the first one just doesn't roll off the tongue. So common, <laughs> common factors of people experiencing that. Yeah, look, there's um, some things we know about the individual and then there's some things we know about the circumstance they find themselves in. And so we might you know, think of them as internal or external factors. I might pick up on the external ones, actually, because so much of the external one, you started to hint at some of those things. What is the cultural acceptance of this idea of growth that comes from a experience that's rattled you? What's the, what, is, what is the cultural, what is the group around me, what do they say about experiencing an event being genuinely rattled and being allowed to have transformed views of life 
after that experience. Is that permitted? Because we know, uh, and we give it the label, the social acceptance of growth, but we know that there's context where that actually is not allowed. Socially, it's not allowed. So unsurprisingly, people who find themselves in those kinds of cultural environments don't tend to experience much growth if there's a sense that that's not really permitted around here. And so I see traces of that in some of the emergency services work that I do, where that time of significant reflection and changing some of the views that I had about life and being seen to grow from it is paradoxically not allowed. The, what seems to be permitted often is that you've been totally unaffected and that's the expectation. And as you say, there will be many incidents where it is water off a duck's back. So we don't want to pretend. I think where therapists and psychologists in my universe can get it wrong is there's almost this assumption that everyone will be somehow harmed here. That's absolutely not the case. And that's a really unhelpful way of thinking about it. Um, but there might be some people who are experiencing the flat tyre or the rattling and we need a place where we can acknowledge that. So anyway, what we know is that if people are in an environment where growth like this is socially acceptable, unsurprisingly, they're more likely to demonstrate it. So that's one of the external factors. Another one of the external factors is the support of others. But again, we have to be really careful about what that looks like. So um, it's not... So it's the kind of support that is supportive of growth as well as personally supportive. So someone who experiences a difficult event and is rattled that has a bunch of mates come round and say, ah, oh, suck it up, princess, you'll be fine, have another beer and everything will be okay. That on the surface can look like support <laughs> in, of some form. So it's not just have you achieved, received any support, it's have you received the right kind of support from other people. That's... And that doesn't have to be professional support. That could be family, friends, people from your local community. It doesn't. But we know that people, the contrast is the people who are isolated and either don't seek out or seek out and don't receive support or receive the wrong kind of support are less likely to show post-traumatic growth than people who seek out and receive good support. Again, it's not surprising, some of this, but that's how it kind of sits yeah. Not surprising and certainly congruent with our referrals. So a lot of our referrals come from uh, male veterans in the 60 to 75 cohort. Yep. And the leading factor, a leading issue will be mental health and then coupled with isolation. Yeah. So they don't have those informal or formal support networks to be able to navigate some of this stuff. And I think the informal networks or getting the right kind of support afterwards, that's the beauty of veteran peers yep. because they, they, they're not professionals in the sense they have a psychology degree, or well, some of them do, um, but they straddle the line of having that uh, lived experience mm. of policing and the personal experience and often experience of going through the, the counselling uh, pathway as well. So they have all of that clinical knowledge. So that kind of support can be brilliant in that space. That's right. And I think I'd give that just the big label of healthy support. Healthy support. So yeah. some people say, yeah, I've got support. And when you unpack it, they will come to the realisation, yeah, the support I have maybe isn't so healthy or positive support. Yeah. So people who have those, we're talking here about what are the factors that are most likely to encourage post-traumatic growth. 
one of the obvious, somewhat obvious but affirmed by research factors is do you have a healthy support of people around you um, that are nurturing you in that direction? And the final external factor is very similar but slightly different in as much as what are people seeing modelled as far as growth is concerned, post-traumatic or post-rattling growth? Are they seeing this modelled in others? Are people telling their stories of post-traumatic growth? Is it not only culturally acceptable, but as there is the story stories being told about about individuals' journey of yes, that happened to me. I went through a season where I was rattled, and now this this is the this is the thing I've done differently. This is the greater appreciation I have for the small things in life. So we know that if you're in an external environment where those stories are told, you are much more likely to experience post-traumatic growth than either where those stories are to- not told or they're poo-pooed. Mm-hmm. So none of this is a surprise, but I think some of it speaks quite compellingly um, to both culture, but also to individuals who are saying, okay, I've got a mate who seems to be rattled. How can I maximise the chance of him or her experiencing post-traumatic growth? Well, am I providing an environment where growth is acceptable? Am I being a positive support to them or am I being a negative support to them or no support to them at all? And have I been courageous enough and vulnerable enough to tell my own growth story if I have one? Because if you do some of those things, then it's much more likely to be beneficial for them and the beautiful example of that that comes to my mind was when our previous chief commissioner uh, graham ashton who was a champion of mental health in victoria police and certainly a champion of supporting our police veterans with the head-to-head walk and coining the the phrase veteran as opposed to ex-member he um, put his hand up uh, around christmas a couple of years ago said i'm not traveling too well i'm going to take a bit of time out Uh, get myself right, feeling better, get some support. And then he did that. He did that very publicly. He let us know. And then he came back into his role as Chief Commissioner, went on to lead Victoria Police, I think for at least another 12 months before Mm. he retired and retired happy, well and healthy. So if that's not the most wonderful example of trying to lead cultural change about putting your hand up and saying, hey, I'm a bit rattled at the minute, quite rightly, it's not a job I'd want, um, then I think that's uh, that's profound for us. Absolutely. And we see that in police. There's a fantastic CFA, as you know, I'm a member of the CFA, was with this SES for many years. Um, member of the CFA, there's an amazing CFA brigade out east of Melbourne that um, its captain uh, shared a powerful story about his own journey and it is fair to say it's been part of transforming the culture of that brigade and there's also a great book called exit wounds by an adf general i've forgotten who the author and he tells his own story exit wounds very clever you know clever phrase um and yeah so this this power of storytelling uh, from first-hand experiences just shouldn't be underestimated. Anyway, they're the external factors. There's some internal things too, though, that individuals can take on independent of their environment they find themselves in. One of those is we know that people who are willing to review their own core beliefs will experience, more likely to experience post-traumatic growth or post-rattling growth than those who are very set in their ways. We know that developmentally, 
people are formulating their own ideas about life. Usually in early life, they adopt their parents' views. In teenagehood and young adulthood, emerging adulthood uh, is the kind of phrase. That's when most of us will be making some key decisions about some pretty important beliefs and ideas we have about life. And we know that whatever you have kind of in place by about the mid-20s or up to 30 is very unlikely to change before you die unless you have some significant thing that causes you to reevaluate that. And often those things, those views of life that we have at our, unsurprisingly, in mid-20s and 30s are not perhaps necessarily well-formed and completely well thought through. And so sometimes these events will start to rattle that The question is, is the individual courageous enough and vulnerable enough to rethink some of those views that they had maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 45 years ago, when they were in their mid-20s or 30s, views about how life works, or are they going to stick to what they think they know? And so that willingness to review core beliefs, and that's not, not just you know, spiritual beliefs or anything. It's just your beliefs about how the world operates. We talked last time about your um, things will be confounding if they go against how you think the world works. Um, are you willing to rethink how the world works? Because if you are, you're more likely to experience post-rattling growth than if you're set in your ways. The final one I find almost most fascinating is an individual's willingness, and the technical phrase we use is to deliberately ruminate. So this is actually taking the time to think about the incident. So when people say, I find myself continuing to think about an incident, I like to ask them, is that thinking being done on your terms or on the incident's terms? Like who's, who's, set, who's setting the agenda about this thinking? Because if the agenda is being set by the incident, then that could look a bit like a flashback or it could look, and that's, that's, that's maybe something to be thinking about. But if thinking about the incident is being set by the individual, where they're actually taking time to go for a walk along the beach and they're going to be intentionally thinking what I'm going to, I'm actually going to set aside some time to see if there's more to be learned from that incident, to draw out from that incident. I'm going to make, I'm going to reach out to someone, professional or otherwise. And my intention is to specifically have a catch up coffee with someone and spend some time deliberately ruminating on this incident, that is a more likely outcome for post-traumatic growth than a person who chooses never to think about it, shuts it down, any thought is seen as a bad thought and they lock it away. Um, And that can often be a strategy that people uh, implement. And there can be a thought that if I'm thinking about the incident, there's a problem there. Actually, the more important question is on whose agenda is that thought happening? And if it's on the incident's agenda, that's not a concern, but that's you know something you might want to be thinking about. But if it's on your agenda, that's actually a really positive sign that you're contemplating this and considering it. Yeah. What an incredible tool to give somebody because it gives them the control back, which ultimately yeah. gives them the power back. And we know that uh, police, the policing community are brilliant at uh, being solution-focused and problem-solving. Yeah. And they like to grapple with things and take it, take control and, and meet it head on. So I think that's incredibly empowering to, to think, oh, no, it's okay. The thoughts come into my mind. I'm going to deal with it and, and go from there. That's right. Great or, way of looking at it. Or I'm going to set aside some time to actually yeah. think about this. Yeah. Yeah, in that's some great. intentional way. I 
Okay. Yeah. The other thing, Shannon, I wanted to pick up from what you've just said is the willingness to review values. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's sad in a way, but I know a lot of police veterans get to a point where they're backed into a corner, for want of a better phrase. The many things they've they've tried different things and they just haven't worked. Yeah. Uh, and a veteran I spoke to, I speak to regularly, contacted me after thinking uh, about picking the phone up for over a month, I think, and then finally got to a place where they'd backed themselves into a corner mm. and there was no other option but to talk to me. <laughs> Poor bastard. Um, excuse my language. But this veteran in particular still contacts me mm. and what they managed to do at a much later in life mm. was to look at their values and how the lens that they've adopted throughout their policing career, they worked in a very specific area of um, tough guy, very hard, sort of that yep. SOG yep. Uh, yep. framework. And now they've come away with this sense of, actually, those values weren't working for me and they were the values of that team at the time they weren't the values of me myself yeah and that was done in there i think he's in his late 60s apologies yeah. if younger and you're <laughs> listening um so i think that how wonderful whilst initially it was a it was a horrible thing to think well i've got no other way out mm. to then go no i can do this i can reevaluate my life and what is important to me yeah absolutely i mean that's a that's a powerful story but not an uncommon one mm. yeah so and i think what is a value? Values are just things that we hold to be important. And when we're holding those things, I think it is good to hold them lightly. And I think emergency services personnel generally, but the police I've dealt with in particular, uh, quite understandably, given the nature of the work, I was reading recently about an understanding of the thin blue line where there's the good and the bad, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. Often I was read it described as there's the, on one side of the blue line is the general public and they're the sheep, and then on the other side of the wolves. And the responsibility of the police is to manage that thin blue line and keep the bad away from the good. Um, and I think that that's an interesting way of thinking about it, but it's very binary. It's very black and white. It's very zero or 10, mm -hmm. as opposed to I think what happens and what I would encourage people to be thinking about is to be thinking more, not so much um, in terms of a switch on or off, but on a dial. You know? And so when we talk about values, we would almost might say, for example, I value honesty. But the question, you know, some people will have that set on a three and other people will have that set on a seven rather than a yes or a no. And I think that willingness, which is part of the, that whole idea of being willing to review your core beliefs, to say, well, at the moment, for this present season, for the situation I'm in, these are the values that I hold and I hold them quite strongly. But I'm open to the idea that as I grow and become a little wiser ideally I might reset those values I think if we can all journey in life with that sort of looser view of our not to say we're valueless but to say I'm willing to modify those as life teaches me different lessons mm -hmm. um, and not wait till you're in your 65s before you make that choice yeah really good reflection but then. also yeah. knowing that you can get to 65 yeah. and still reevaluate. exactly you know yeah. your values you'll dial up on some and dial down on others yeah, exactly. so there's always that flexibility yeah. which which i think we often forget as humans it's it can we can become quite black or white and being in an organization 
like Victoria Police, where there are rules and rank structure and things that need to be followed, yeah. it's hard to then delineate that from our personal lives and our personal values. For sure, yeah. So the, the big question is how do we support people, veterans, veterans' families, the community towards post-rattled growth? What a great and most important question to finish on. And the honest answer is we don't really know. So that if we want to take it from a research point of view, this is an area that just hasn't been fully explored, is what can we be doing for people that is intentionally working towards them achieving post-rattled growth? What we do know, though, is that there's been lots of research studies, particularly in the area of post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. where treatments have been applied in that space and somewhat to the researchers surprise growth has been noticed and so they've gone backwards and said well what happened there during that PTSD treatment process that seemed to lead to growth but there's been a surprisingly little research to actually say what let's wipe the slate clean what could we do from the ground up to just set out to achieve growth from the outset rather than it being an accidental byproduct so I'll declare we don't exactly know, but we've got some pretty good clues. And so the three things that we know are really helpful are listening to the person's story, giving them a chance to tell. And I think we might have laughed together, Beck, and maybe let the little cat out the bag therapeutically, that actually giving a plant person a plant chance to tell their story, a place to tell their story, in and of itself is valuable. And not to then judge that or to impose solutions on that or to bring our own views to that, but just to give them a safe place for them to tell their story and to listen with care and compassion is big tick number one that is likely to allow them to achieve post-traumatic growth. It will, and that's a that's a good coverall because if they're in post-traumatic stress, it will maybe get them back on track, but it also will help them achieve growth. So that's standard. The the little things though that are extra beyond giving someone a safe place to tell their story, which is basic care and compassion for people, is as they're telling their story, to choose to identify and name areas of growth that you might be hearing in their story. I had the incredible privilege of leading a group uh, a week or two ago uh, who responded to the floods in Victoria, a group of Victorian government workers, and we did what was traditionally called a debrief. But actually, when I do a debrief, I'm looking to Call, I'd rather call it a growth discovery conversation. And as we talk, people talked about their stories, we could name areas of growth that people hadn't even previously seen before. And others could hear the story of growth from their colleagues and their peers. And so it was a very positive kind of experience and vibe because we were intentionally calling out where we heard growth might be happening instead of just letting that story gloss over. We called it out and we named it and said, well, that's sounding like even at this early stage, you might be experiencing some of these traces of growth. And that was quite powerful. And then the, the next level, and you have to manage this carefully, <coughs> is, is if you haven't heard it already, and particularly if it's a little while after the incident, so you wouldn't do this on the afternoon or in you know, the next days following an incident that's rattled someone, but sometime after, if they're telling their story, to have permission to gently inquire about the possibility of growth that might be incurring. So even if you're not hearing it, 
Respectful curiosity. Respectful curiosity <coughs> and intentional questioning to say, well, you know, that's been a really tough story and obviously it's had a significant impact on you. I'm sure you would never want it to happen again, but is there anything that's come of that that you now look back and say, there's some part of my life that is different in a positive way because of that experience without in any way diminishing the significance of the experience? So... In terms of the support we can give, base level listening, but that's good in all cases, non-judgmental listening. But the extra two little things in terms of drawing out the post-traumatic growth are when you hear it in their story, don't let them skip over it, but sort of shine a light back on that and say, that's really pleased that that happened. And if you're not hearing too many of these things to gently inquire, express positive curiosity about whether or not those things have been there. And they'll often emerge and they hadn't even realised it previously. And so there'll be those paths of discovery that they'll kind of go on and that'll be very helpful for them too. So it's an, it's an area that's really fun at the moment because um, it's not thoroughly explored, <clears throat> but we know that those three things will be more helpful than not. So. Yeah. What I love about what you've just uh, said, Shannon, and what you always go back to are really basic and helpful strategies. So with the mental health industry under a lot of strain at the minute, the three tools you've just provided, we can actually do for us ourselves, but we can also do for our friends and family on the spot. So you don't need a six-month waiting list to see a psychiatrist to look for post-rattled growth and to support people in that experience, I can go out and do it now. Absolutely. Uh, which is fabulous. Uh, the other thing that I love is the... I've lost my train of thought. It's going to come back to me. I think I try and <clears throat> try and pitch it at that basic level, Beck, yeah. because... It works for me, not because I'm trying to take something complicated that I do therapeutically and dumb it down in any way. I'm just sharing the basic stuff that I use in my own conversations. Um, and I think it's not rocket science. Mm. It's, it's, it's important, though, that because if it was complicated, I wouldn't be able to do it. And like, nice and simple works for me. <laughs> yeah, so Same I don't, here. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I relate. Also, the um, I find it fascinating, just going back quickly, but the, the lack of evidence or what the, the actual recipe is towards post-rattle growth um, and that as humans or as therapists, we don't naturally look for those things, why it's working. I think that's probably because we don't want to do ourselves out of a, a job but I'm reassured to know that there are police veterans out there and, and colleagues and friends and family that are doing these things every day for people. And that whilst our policing community and first responders in general can suffer the most hideous uh, atrocities and they see things that we will never see, uh, by the grace of God, uh, but they can make sense of that and make sense of their life and going forward take something from it. We Absolutely. would never want someone to experience it, but being able to make sense of it yep. is surely that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. Well said. Thanks, Beck. Beauty. Shannon, we're going to catch up again and talk about moral injury, hopefully. Yes, looking forward to that next time. Which hope, which plays into this topic as well and, and into our previous topic. So bring that on. Yeah, look forward to that. Thanks for having me. Happy Valentine's. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Police Veterans Victoria, or head over to our website, www.policeveteransvic.org.au. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.